Looking to stand out from the pack at your first job? When you earn a master's in management from Georgetown, you'll gain the skills employers value most, elevating your career prospects for years to come. Get started at choosegeorgetown.com slash MIM. It's the Smart Driving Cars podcast. Welcome. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the faculty chair of autonomous vehicle engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Hi, Alan. Hi, Fred. And we're happy to be joined today by Brad Templeton. Brad has many, many areas of interest and expertise in the world of technology and Internet pioneer, started the first dot-com, chairman emeritus of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, just to name a few. And he writes the RoboCars blog and was actually part of uh, Google's uh, autonomous vehicle team. Thanks for joining us, Brad. It's great to be here. First up. A bit of news to chat about. Waymo, part of Alphabet, formerly Google, is making a bit of history. It says it now has cars driving on public roads in the Phoenix metropolitan area with no one in the driver's seat. Alan, uh, first to you, a pretty big deal? Uh, uh, no, I mean, it's it's a deal. It's not a, a, a a pretty big deal. It's just the deal. All they've done is move the driver from behind the steering wheel to the back seat. Uh, now there is uh, that that has some implications on perception by uh, um, you know the riding public, maybe. But uh, but other than that, um, uh, it uh, really doesn't uh, doesn't have much to bear on the on the mobility that they're providing. And um, and so it's it's not driverless as is implied by some, and it's not uh, really providing uh, affordable mobility because you still have uh, uh, an attendant on board that needs to feed his or her family, and therefore uh, we're still at the uh, expensive chauffeur kind of mobility, uh, which is what they're offering. Brad, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it is a much bigger deal than Alan suggests. Uh, the supervisor in the back does not have access to a steering wheel, uh, those sort of controls. They can just do an abort, get the vehicle off the road. So they're basically making a statement that they feel they have reached a certain safety level that their board of directors is willing to sign off on deploying a vehicle with much less human supervision. Yes, they're not ready for a full commercial service yet, although they are going to let the public into it pretty soon, according to what they've described. But what this really is is a statement by Waymo that their testing has convinced them that they've reached a certain safety level. Now, today, um, the average human driver has an accident that's reported to the police about every 500,000 miles, to the insurance companies about every 250,000 miles. And according to Waymo, their observation of a lot of real road traffic suggests there are dings that nobody reports about every 100,000 miles. So you want to get to the other end of it, you get an injury every 1.2 million and a fatality every 80 million. But they must be convinced that they have now reached a level of needing an intervention to prevent an accident extremely rarely. I'm going to guess they're heading north to that 500,000-mile territory. That is a major milestone. They are not out there to endanger the public. They have more money than God. So there's no reason for them not to have these supervisors in there. But they're making a statement, we have reached this level, and that is a big deal. 
You know, when I read this, I, I saw it as, as maybe an incremental step, like everything else that's going on with this technology. That okay, uh, the he's gone from the from the front seat, the passenger seat, now to the back seat. The next step, I guess, is out the door. Well, he has fewer controls. He does not have the ability to grab a steering wheel in some kind of real-time emergency situation and solve it. He just has the ability, kind of like the supervisor on the um, the Navia. We'll probably talk about the Navia. It also had an incident this week um, that is able to stop the vehicle. And I think uh, yeah, it's incremental in the sense that they just keep getting safer and safer. And one day they decide, look at this. We've reached the threshold we wanted. We're ready to deploy. And someday, and it may not be too long from now, they're going to say, we've reached the threshold where we don't need a dude in there at all. Alan? Well, the, the way I uh, – and, and, of course, I don't know what they have, and I, I just speculate. And, but I, I would imagine that the, the person in the backseat has his cell phone, and they have the equivalent of a joystick in there and, and, uh, and can control the vehicle. I agree with Brad that they feel very comfortable that these that the technology really does work and it is a step to take the individual from the behind the steering wheel to the back seat because as you suggested Fred the next move is uh, these vehicles are going to show up to give rides to the people that they've been given rides to, and uh, there won't be anybody in the back seat, and so there, and that will be a big step because one doesn't provide affordable mobility with these things unless you don't have a driver in there, or you don't have a, you don't have to pay somebody's. Uh, uh, living wage uh, to uh, to show uh, to be with you, and so I I agree that they they've reached that. I also suspect that they have an enormous amount of telemetry in each one of those vehicles. Uh, that they have a situation room somewhere in uh, in the hollowed out mountain of Colorado or something, and they can probably take over and drive these vehicles uh, remotely. And uh, and if they don't, they should put it in there. And when they eventually do take the person out of there, I'm sure they'll, they'll be um, overseeing what's going on. But of course, that is a big step because, because that is scalable. Because the person back there in the hollowed out mountain uh, will, in the, in the beginning, be watching uh, one vehicle, but then two, then four, then then eight, then sixteen, and all, and asymptotically, there will reach a point at which uh, there is essentially uh, no human supervision. So that will be the enormous step uh, that they take, and that's when they then can deploy these things and put out their mobility for all, which I still believe is what their their objective is: is to provide affordable mobility for all, for which. They probably anticipate making a very big profit. Let's, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe we should just take a quick step back and describe for the audience uh, what it is that, that Waymo is doing there in the Phoenix area. They've, they've got a, a service open to the public, right? It's not open to the public yet. They, uh, 
are offering it right now to what they call the early riders, who are members of the public, but they had to sign up and be vetted and, and be a select set of people. They have said that they will get ready to offer a real service to the public. They haven't set a date for that. Brad, give us a little bit of insight into your background. We just touched on a few things, which is really so rich and why you've become so passionate about this automated car technology. Well, uh, Alan says something quite correct when he talks about getting the driver out and changing the economics of transportation in a major way, and I think that's a very important part of it. But like most people, I've always been interested in the ability of, of a car to drive itself and of a robot to be this capable. Uh, but after the DARPA challenges, which a lot of people watched, it became clear that this was happening and was no longer science fiction anymore. Uh, around the time of those challenges, I met Sebastian Thrun, who most of you will know, who uh, won the second challenge. His team won the second challenge, and he was hired by Google to start the team that built the project we're talking about today. And he showed me how far they'd gotten, and I realized this was really going to happen. Started researching the numbers around it, the economics around it. Uh, as well as the non-economic things like saving of human lives and greenhouse gases, and decided that this was going to be one of the biggest ways computers would change the world in the next decade. And uh, that's turned out to be a, looks like it's a tr prediction that's on track. So I immediately started researching and writing about it, uh, laying out the future, trying to solve the problems, shared my writing with um, a certain gentlemen at Google who uh, invited me to come in and help their team, and I've been working on it one way or another since then. I wanted to mention another hat that I have, actually, is I work with a company in Estonia, which was there last week, called Starship Robotics. And we've already reached the level that Alan describes because we have our robots out there cruising the sidewalks of about five or six cities. And we have an operation center, exactly as he describes, where our operators are not running the robots all the time, but dealing with them when they have a problem that the robot cannot solve. Now, the nice thing about our sidewalk robots is they don't go very fast, and they don't weigh very much, so they can stop in 30 centimeters if they're confused by something. So that makes this problem much easier to deal with. The robot runs into something it can, uh, doesn't literally run into, encounters something that it can't handle, and then it signals it wants controller to help it, and the controller helps it, gives the robot some guidance, not real-time steering, I don't think that uh, any control center, and many people have built control centers. Nissan has built one, and we built one, and we can assume Waymo has one. Um, these control centers won't be able to drive the vehicles in real time. The data networks are really not up for that. They provide guidance instead, as in turn right here, or try and drive to that spot, and they let the automated systems do the rest. But that already exists, and we've built it, and other people have built it, and definitely that's how it will work, and that indeed does not have the economic problem of putting a human being in every vehicle. When you can get that, I believe we'll also get a second factor, which will have vehicles that are designed for only one person and are electric, and it will actually be quite inexpensive. So I predict we're going to have transportation available for well under 30 cents per mile. Now, car ownership today is about uh, 50 cents a mile, and riding in an Uber is between $1.50 and $2 a mile. So that's not just a, a quantitative difference. It's really qualitative. What kind of robots are you talking about uh, on the sidewalks? Are these carrying passengers, or describe it for us? Well, no, they certainly can't carry passengers unless maybe it's a baby. Um, they are for delivery of um, groceries and goods and food, and so they're about the size of a beer cooler. Um, they're running around in Redwood City, California. They're running around in Washington, D.C. Um, they're going around in London and in uh, Hamburg and Estonia, which is where the headquarters is. 
and they're actually doing deliveries today. There, it's a, it's an operating service. It's not a profitable operating service yet because we're just beginning, and we still are working out, of course, all that we have to work out. But over time, we want to get a, a local delivery down to under a dollar, which is also a big economic change. Very cool. Alan, in your latest newsletter, you highlight a Wired magazine report on the woman making Uber's self-driving cars smarter and cheaper. Uh, Rachel Erdison, I believe is her name, and she's focused on the use of cameras for navigation instead of LiDAR. Well, um, I guess, uh, you know, in the DARPA challenge, uh, we were... that's what we use. Uh, we use stereo camera, and I guess I've always been a uh, computer. I, I call myself a computer vision bigot with respect to this sensory system for these things. And uh, and uh, I've always um, had the perspective that uh, that since uh, if as long as we're paying attention and we're not mis- misbehaving, we drive pretty well, and uh, most of our uh, information is gathered using our, our eyes, and the whole system, in some sense, has been built uh, to operate that way because that's the way we uh, understand the system and are able to drive. So I've always thought that the, that the eventual simple solution to all this is going to be based on uh, cameras and image processing and um, and I think that that's what she believes also, and um, and that's um, you know that's why I think it's interesting. Um, in the end, as Brad pointed out, the objective is to provide in, inexpensive mobility for all, and um, and the, the, how much it's going to cost is is really important. And um, to do it, of course, not just for people, but as as Brad is doing it for goods. And so, uh, of course, if one looked at Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, what does Jeff want to do? Um, as I've suggested, you know, he he could put uh, larger vehicles uh, out on the roads in the middle of the night when nobody else is out there, and uh, deliver all the things that I buy from Amazon, um, you know, before I get up in the morning. So. Uh, there are enormous opportunities, but the the part of the objective of really making it happen is to make sure that they're um, they're inexpensive. And I, uh, to me, the the road to inexpensive is uh, is through uh, machine vision. So I I strongly disagree and agree at the same time, of course. Um, so it absolutely does want to get inexpensive. However, there is absolutely no reason for it to be inexpensive right now when people are trying to make it work. And the goal is to be safe. The universal goal of every team is to be the first team to reach that level of safety that you can deploy, which is, you know, the milestone that Waymo has gotten to at least partway to. And so you're not going to uh, put lower quality sensors or cheaper sensors in your vehicle uh, if it's going to slow down your path to being safe. You're not going to um, take a LIDAR out to save $500 or $1,000. Now, another company that I work with on um, the advisory board of the, is called Quantergy. Uh, we are building LIDARs at a price range of uh, $250. Eventually, we want to get them down to about $100, but we're going to have some competition. There are several other companies also pushing to get LIDARs to that price. So LIDAR will be a low-cost solution. But here's the most important thing. LIDAR works today. 
LiDAR can give you the 6-9 reliability in perceiving obstacles that is necessary to be safe in driving on the roads, especially at speeds faster than our delivery robots go. Computer vision is very promising, and it's come to a revolution in the last four years, thanks to actually Jeffrey Hinton from the University of Toronto, which is also my hometown, by the way, and, and uh, where uh, Rachel's from. Um, so anything Canadian must be good in this space. By the way, a lot of Canadians. Yeah. Speak. Chris Ermson, also a Canadian, the head of the winner of the DARPA Urban Challenge and the head of uh, the Waymo project until he left it about a year ago to start Aurora. So anyway, anything Canadian is good. But in this case, she's not entirely right because I think the right answer is use superhuman sensors if you can have them at an affordable price. And any price is affordable for the first few years of this technology. In 2025, people will start competing and saying, how can I make this cheaper? In which case, it may be the case that computer vision is the low-cost answer, although right now computer vision requires very expensive and power-hungry GPUs to execute the machine learning systems and neural networks that everyone is using with them. Basic stereo doesn't require that, but everyone wants to go beyond basic stereo. So I think the people who are chasing doing it with cameras are chasing the target for 2025. Because I can tell you when LiDAR is going to be cheap, and that's very soon. No one can tell you when computer vision is going to be good enough to actually go to sleep in the car, because um, it's certainly not there yet. Now, to a, to a, a layperson like myself, w- without the expertise that, that you folks have, it would seem to me that the cameras would have the same problem that I have when uh, a truck passes by on a very wet road and splashes onto the windshield or slush even worse, and I can't see at all. I, I would assume cameras would have the same problem. They can, and actually LIDARs can face that problem as well. The spinning LIDARs that you see used on many of these actually have as a positive feature. They spin so fast they actually re- remove the water from them. But some of the other ones don't have a spinning cover, so they don't have that ability. So that's why you definitely want to have more than one sensor. Uh, you definitely have to have multiple sensors anyway in case of sensor failure. Radar is a very popular choice. Radar is not affected by that. It sees through fog. It sees through dust. It can see 250 meters, which uh, most of the LIDARs out there can't do. There's a couple of LIDARs. Waymo has one. And uh, GM uh, Cruise, sorry, no, um, um, who was it who bought uh, Princeton Lightwave? Um, um, Argo. Yeah, Far- yeah, Argo, which is Ford. Um, has this uh, uh, one, this longer range lidar, but anyway, radar does see that far, and the radar is just very low resolution. It doesn't give you a, an accurate picture of the world, but it does tell you what's out there for sure. So you want to have lidar, you want to have radar, you want to have cameras. In fact, there's even a few other sensors that people like to have. You don't want to have only one. Some will be superhuman. Some will be vision and work the way that humans do, and all of them together are going to get you up to those six or seven nines over nine, many nines you think you need. I guess ideally you really want to have all of the technology available in there, uh, but at the same time you've got to find a way to make it affordable, which it sounds like you're doing. Well, cameras are quite inexpensive, although the GPUs for them are not. LIDARs are coming down. Radars are coming down. Uh, there are also ultrasonic sensors, which are super cheap. So... I believe that it will be pretty inexpensive. And here's another important thing that very few people realize. If you take a look at Google's third-generation prototype, not the minivan that we're seeing in this Phoenix demo, but the the little car that looks like a koala bear that uh, people saw, that car has no 
dashboard or anything in it. No pedals, no controls, no stereo, no climate controls. All of those things on the dashboard that the car company charges you thousands of dollars for, they're all gone from there. It's actually likely that even if you put a thousand or two thousand dollars of sensors and computing on one of these cars, the things you take out actually cost more. So you make the vehicle cheaper than today's vehicle, not more expensive. Yeah, no, agreed. I mean, uh, Brad said it very well. Yes. Bloomberg is reporting that a French startup called Navia is coming out with a robot-driven six-seat vehicle, a robo-taxi, that will start selling for about $290,000, not a lot of my price range, and they've already built a 15-seat shuttle. Uh, and the word is they'll be tested in the streets of Paris in a few weeks, go on sale in the beginning in the third quarter of next year. Your thoughts about that? Well, there have been a number of these, and, of course, uh, there was the whole uh, City Mobile 2 demonstrations a couple of years ago, and there are a number of these uh, vehicles coming out. Uh, to me, part of the issue with those vehicles is uh, are they still going to have a, dr uh, a driver or an attendant? And if they still have a driver or an attendant, then they're not addressing the mobility problem. Uh, but um, sure, uh, they're going to have to do enough testing and get this the same nine 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 reliability that Brad was talking about before they take that person out there. And uh, I hope they they're all doing their homework. Yeah, so Navia is actually a remarkable company because they have been selling in the commercial market their shuttles, their self-driving shuttles, for over four years now. So a lot of people are saying, we're going to sell a car in 2020. They had one for sale in 2012. Um, and it was only sold, however, to run on private campuses. It didn't go on public streets. And, yes, they would still like occasionally to have the supervisor in it. Now, this new vehicle is, a, is an extension of that. It's going to go on public streets. It's going to go a little faster. The old one didn't go much faster than about 20 kilometers an hour. It was one of the reasons it was able to operate this way. And it's kind of funny because, uh, well, I'm not a fan of them. Maybe I was not a fan of them. But a lot of people like to quote so-called levels that the National Highway Transportation Safety Agency declared and the Society of Automotive Engineers declared for um, the abilities of these cars, these levels are all based on what the role of the human being was in the car, which is, I think, stupid. I think that uh, the, the role of the human being is the unimportant part. But they put this focus and they said, we're going to have level one, we're going to have level two, we're going to have level three and level four. Well, the Navia was the first vehicle to be sold commercially, and it was what they would call level four, which is a human being. And uh, so that sort of, you know, hopefully – will put to rest this idea that there are these levels and they have numbers. That's, that's a little rant that we'll go into. But as for Navia, um, you have to give them a lot of credit. But beyond what City Mobile did, which is running on um, very experimental courses, they've actually been selling it commercially. Now, to be fair, Navia used to be spelled differently because the first version of it went bankrupt and the assets were bought by a company that renamed it slightly and has been selling it. But, uh, listen, I think I think it's fantastic. And um, I even make a joke. I... I talk about the high-tech nation of France when I'm giving talks in Britain, and everyone laughs at that. But, in fact, they uh, really have done a great job. Well, let me ask a, just a, a simple question, uh, both of you. If we talk about not having a human attendant 
um, and you have paying passengers boarding these shuttles. How do you how do you deal with the issues of people getting on and off without paying, et cetera, et cetera? Well, it's with a shuttle that is an issue. Most people, including myself, think of it more as a taxi or at the very best like Uber pool where you have a vehicle which is shared among people. But most of the time it's a, a taxi for one person, and so you summon it on your mobile phone, it comes to you and picks you up, and it opens the door when it sees that you are nearby, your mobile phone is nearby, and lets you out where you want to go, and so there's no real way to do what you just described. Right, the payment is going your to phone. be a, if, Yeah, if it's going to be a shuttle that stops and opens the doors and anybody walks in, um, you know, I guess you could see that problem. But I think the shuttle idea is silly, and... One of the reasons, again, these economics, which is to say that even though for transit agencies, drivers are indeed a large part of their budget, it's still relatively efficient to have one person drive 20 people. And what's inefficient is to have one person drive one person. And, uh, you know, we actually, the biggest inefficiency is the 50 billion hours that I calculate that amateur drivers in America drive every year. And we spend 50 billion hours manipulating steering wheels, and the entire productive labor output of the United States is 240 billion hours. So it's a pretty amazing number. And getting rid of that is the big change. And changing shuttles is, is just something that it's an early market. The only people who will pay $290,000 for a vehicle are the people who are running a shuttle all day around their campus or their town. They're having three shifts of drivers. And so they can actually say, okay, three salaries for a year. This will pay for itself in a few years. And so we can actually afford it. But for everyone else, that's a, that's a sort of a tangent to what's going on. While we're on the subject of shuttles, uh, finally here, uh, a Las Vegas-based self-driving shuttle service has celebrated its launch day this week by getting into an accident. Uh, it was with a human driver, according to a local news report. Uh, the shuttle hit the front end of a large delivery truck as the human driver pulled out into the street from a loading bay. Um, I guess people see this, and so they, they automatically want to blame the driverless vehicle no matter what, right? Well, that was the Navia, actually. It's the older version of the Navia that started in Las Vegas. What happened was the Navia was trying to move in this zone, and a truck was backing up. And the Navia saw the truck backing up and stopped, uh, but it did not itself back up to get out of the way. And the truck kept coming, and the truck bumped into the shuttle. It wasn't very hard. Nobody was hurt. Um, but the fault was put entirely on the truck driver, who kept backing up, even though there was something in his way. Uh, some people are putting a little fault on the Navia because it could have been smarter. It could have backed up a bit, and uh, it, then it would have avoided being hit. And that's actually a more complex issue, which we can get into if you want, but just to correct the facts slightly on this one. And I guess, Alan, uh, to bring you in on this, uh, in, it wouldn't be a story if, if, that, if there had been a driver. <laughs> it wouldn't have been a story at all, a driver behind the wheel of the shuttle. Yes, nobody would have bothered uh, to even mention it because that happens all, all the time and um, and it's a natural sort of thing almost. And the only reason it, it hit the news was because uh, it was on launch day at like two hours of operation, there's already a crash. Uh, but uh, at least here, the, the police and everyone has made it clear that in fact um, uh, the fault uh, was with the with was with the truck backing up. Sure, I mean, we could all go and avoid every one of the crashes that we were in, but uh, in some sense, um, I don't know, um, um, 
maybe we do, maybe we don't. Um, uh, maybe the NTSB on this one will do what they did with the Tesla crash in, in Florida. They'll they'll blame the the uh, the driverless vehicle uh, for not backing up and and uh, and avoiding it. Uh, I don't know, but uh, uh, in some sense, it's it's not news. Um, uh, but in other sense, um, the fact that it was not at fault is very important. <clears throat> At some point, uh, one of these vehicles will be at fault. And uh, why? Probably because um, uh, in the systems, we uh, didn't anticipate something. And um, what will be important then is to fix it uh, so it doesn't happen again. <clears throat> we think that we're smart enough to be able to, to know all the potential scenarios and so on and so forth. Uh, but um, I don't think that we are. <clears throat> uh, experience, uh, we're going to learn from experience. And what we have to make sure is that we share that information, uh, that everybody benefits uh, from tripping over the, um, uh, the, the case that nobody thought of, and that we fix it. And, um, and that will be the important uh, process that has to take place. Well, of course, and you, you've just, it's just slipped your mind because I know you know about it, but uh, Google uh, at the time, I think it wasn't Waymo yet, did actually hit a bus, and it was their fault uh, a few years ago. And that's been heavily explained out there on the web. And, of course, indeed, after examining it, they fixed the bug, and so none of their cars will make that mistake again. And that's going to be true in the future for all these vehicles, if any of them do make a mistake. Uh, very quickly, all the models of that type will never make that mistake again. And, in fact, as word gets out, if any other car might make the mistake, they won't. And this is actually one of the things that's very different between robots and human beings, which is that when one human being makes a mistake, it doesn't prevent all humans from making the same mistake again. And so we're going to learn, uh, I think, pretty quickly. Now, all these teams are out there driving. Google announced Waymo. I keep calling them Google, and, and they are Google way. But Waymo announced that they were now up to three and a half million miles of driving. That's about six or seven full human lifetimes of driving, although in a limited space. So they've encountered on the road already everything you're likely to encounter in your life and several other people's lives. Now they combine that with building simulators where they can create all sorts of weird situations that you won't encounter on the road or that you won't encounter very often or too risky to actually do. And they've created millions of those situations and test their cars in simulation for 10 million miles every day, many, many human lifetimes of driving. And then finally, because they have so much money, they went and bought a, a, an old airport and they built a complete test center there. And they have put their cars through 20,000 different uh, risky and dangerous situations in many cases out on the test track. So every build of their software goes through this again and again. It gets tested in simulation. And it will go through far more driving than any human being will ever encounter, which will not result in perfection. There will be weird situations, as Alice says, and as a result, there will be some accidents that happen. But if we do this right, over time, that's going to keep reducing and reducing. And if we hold it to a standard of perfection, we'll never get there. But if we hold it to a standard of being safer than people are, uh, we're getting pretty close to that now. Brad, you know, we're going to want to have you back. But before we let you go... With the role that you've had in uh, in the dot com age, uh, bringing it uh, into reality, and all of that's meant all that that's meant to the world and society, tell us what you feel we're on the precipice of 
with this technology, how it's going to change our lives? Well, so I think the biggest change is that a statistic, which I'm sure you've said before on this podcast, uh, that 1.2 million people die every year in car accidents and millions more are injured. And the ability to make a dent in that, I'm not going to get rid of all of it, but the ability to make a serious dent in that is huge, and it dwarfs the money that will be involved. But the money is pretty big. Um, I calculate that ground transportation around the world is about $7 trillion, with a T, $5 trillion of it in cars. So that's the third largest industry in the world. And just as photography and music and so many other industries have been turned upside down by the computer and now work entirely differently, that's what's going to happen to transportation. It's going to change not just how we get around, but where we live, what sort of places we live in. The car re-architected the city in the 20th century. The trolley re-architected or the train architected in the 19th century. The 21st century is going to see a re-architecting of our cities and how we live and who we interact with. Um, it's going to be really huge. Well, Brad Templeton, thanks for joining us. Uh, and people can find you at robocars.com. Is that the best place? Or you have some other places to send us? The site's actually a bit static now. Most of the stuff goes into a blog, but that's linked from there, so they'll easily find it from there. Well, that's it for this edition of the Smart Driving Cars podcast. Thanks again, Brad. You can find us at smartdrivingcar.com on SoundCloud and look for My Tech Reports at techthenation.com. I'm Fred Fishkin along with Alan Kornhauser. Thanks for listening. Huge savings on new and previously leased furnishings. That's right, huge savings. At Court Furniture Clearance Center, choose from our wide variety of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. You'll find sofas from $199.99 and more. Everything in our 9,000-square-foot showroom is Court-certified, guaranteed, and in stock, ready for delivery or to take home today. Visit our Chantilly Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off.